Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you all to Barb Linehan. Welcome to the podcast, Barb. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Hazel. Happy to be here. Yeah, I am so excited for everyone to hear all about you and the incredible work that you do. But if anyone doesn't recognize your name or isn't familiar with some of the work that you have done, could you give yourself a bit of a brief introduction? Absolutely. So I am a marine mammal veterinarian, and I currently work for the National Marine Mammal Foundation, which is in San Diego, California. Just a little bit of backstory uh, for people who haven't heard of the foundation. We are a pretty small nonprofit that started back in 2007 and initially had just a handful of employees as a sort of branch off of the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program. And now we've grown to over 150 staff members. So we have veterinarians like myself, vet techs, uh, records office, medical records office personnel, animal care trainers, biologists, conservation scientists, etc. So it's grown to a pretty diverse team. And we're based out of San Diego, but we also have a field office in Charleston, South Carolina. And our mission is to improve and protect life for marine mammals, humans, and our shared oceans through science, service, and education. And we, so we are lucky in that we kind of get the best of both worlds, in my opinion, we get to work with the incredible animals of the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program um, as contractors. So we're not in the Navy, but we work for the Navy and help take care of them on both the training and medical side. And then what's really cool and unique about then being a nonprofit, so we can kind of take that knowledge and apply it elsewhere and do education and outreach and things that the Navy itself can't necessarily do. Um, so that's kind of the best of both worlds. We get to take care of these incredible animals and make sure they have the best you know, medical care and welfare and treatment. And then we take our collective expertise and then can apply it in other venues. So it's really um, rewarding getting to kind of wear both hats. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a, div- a diverse um, place to work. And can I just say, I am so jealous of you living in San Diego. If I could choose somewhere for me to live, I adore that place. <laughs> it's a great place to live. <laughs> Sometimes I miss big green trees, but other than that, it's pretty mm, great. <laughs> yeah. So when you were younger, did you always have a passion for animals? Did you always kind of know that working with animals or specifically veterinary studies was something that you wanted to do? Yes. Since I was little, I was that little kid who loved animals and always wanted to be a vet. I had one of those little vet kits that I would play with. Um, And some of my earliest memories of specifically aquatic animals, like falling in love with aquatic animals, was a trip when I was six with my family down to Orlando, Florida, and we went to SeaWorld and Epcot. And so I got to feed a dolphin at SeaWorld feeder pool and got to just see manatees for the first time at Epcot and was just fascinated by all the facts I learned and just seeing them, you know, even though I'd heard of them before, just seeing them really, um, it's kind of like a pivotal memory for me where I was like, oh, I want to work with these creatures. And then I remember in third grade having to do a project on an endangered species 
having recently fallen in love with manatees, I picked manatees. And, you know, we had to look into, okay, well, why are they endangered? What are their threats? And I just remember, like, I just have this distinct memory of being devastated when I found mm -hmm. out that their only threat was humans and that we were essentially the reason that they were on the endangered species list yeah. and declined. And that they have no natural predators and they're just kind of like these big giant loves. And so that I remember being so sad about that and saying to my mom, like, okay, I want to someday work to be a vet that saves manatees. <laughs> and kind of from there, I just kept on that path. And uh, my cousin is actually was a marine mammal vet before he became an astronaut. And so he worked at the Navy Marine Mammal Program back in the 90s. So I, do, I remember hearing his stories too about working with the Navy dolphins and being inspired by that. So certainly along the way, there's multiple memories and inspirations that kind of continued me on that path and kind of solidified as I went along that that's what I wanted to do oh my goodness your family like what <laughs> what a little bunch of dream achievers marine mammal vet and astronaut what yeah yeah not not a bad uh family tree for professions I guess <laughs> absolutely um so did when you started vet school were you very much of the mindset I want to specialize in marine mammals from the get-go. Yeah, so even prior to vet school, I had volunteered during summers, like during undergrad and during some of my undergrad coursework. I went to Cornell University and I was an animal science major. So there I got a lot of exposure to all different species and was able to actually work at the Wildlife Health Center there. So I knew I loved the wildlife side of it. And I got to work with raptors and birds of prey and I loved that. Um, and then during my summers, I did unpaid internships at the Navy Marine Mammal Program and the Marine Mammal Center, both in California. And that was my first time really being immersed in the marine mammal medicine and stranding and all of it and training. And I just loved it. So then applying to vet school after those experiences, I knew that I wanted to be an aquatic wildlife zoo vet, something in that realm, um, especially aquatic, but I love all of them, really, all of the creatures. And so I knew uh, when I applied, I ended up going to University of Florida because they have a certificate in aquatic animal health program. So I ended up doing that program. And it's essentially on top of your normal veterinary curriculum and coursework where you learn about everything. It's kind of like an above and beyond. You can do extra credits to mm -hmm. do specifically aquatic animal health focused projects and courses. Um, so I, I loved it because even then during vet school, I got exposed to more of it, which was yeah. great. You know, it, unpaid internships, while, you know, they bring a big financial toll, they can be so unbelievably useful to not only your networking, etc, but also to show you the nature of the job. And, right. you know, a lot of people are surprised at how many interns after interning decide, oh, actually, this isn't for me. So Absolutely. when you were doing it, can you remember any moments of your internships that really solidified for you? Okay, this is where this is what I meant to be doing. Oh, that's a fantastic question. I actually do remember when I ended up writing about it in my vet school essays because it was just such a cool memory for me. Um, when I was at the Marine Mammal Center, I was their stranding intern. So for four months, I basically, any time any animal stranded along the California coast, which was, they cover about, I think it's 600 miles. It's a huge, huge range. They would call and I would answer the hotline phone and the calls, you can imagine like the variety of phone calls mm. they get. 
So not always the most um, glamorous job answering the standing hotline phone. But one of the most amazing parts is I got to shout at the vet staff and then I got to go help with rescues and releases. And so on one release, uh, it was this group of juvenile sea lions and they you know, came in as these skinny, sad, sick little things. We fattened them up, got them healthy. And then I got to go on the release and we drove to this pretty remote area to release them. And the, it was my first time ever seeing a release and basically opening the cages, letting them run to the water. And then they all stopped and looked back at us and then bam off. And it was like, you know, everyone kind of choked up a little, like almost as though they're turning back to say like, thanks, bye. Mm. (laughs) Before they swim off into their, you know, happy new lease on life that we've given. So just that feeling that that experience gave me and, you know, kind of just solidified like, oh, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. I want to save animals, especially marine mammals. And if I can apply that to help wild animals and endangered species, then that is just the perfect combination. Like that is the career for me. And so here I am (laughs) many years later. Yeah. And obviously you then went through, you know, your final years at vet school and you knew that you were specializing with marine mammals. So coming out of vet school, was it difficult to line something up for you to go out into working as a vet or how did you navigate that? Yeah. So I ended up doing a small animal internship first after vet school. And a lot of people ask, you know, whether or not a small animal internship is helpful if you know you want to end up in exotic or zoo or aquatic animal field and not necessarily just working with dogs and cats every day. Mm. So I did the small animal internship with dogs and cats every day for the most part, knowing that that's not where I wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got a lot out of it. The internship, you basically drink through the fire hose for a year and just see tons and tons of cases through emergency and internal medicine. And you kind of solidify your vet skills. So Mm -hmm. even though I knew it wasn't going to be working with dogs and cats forever, it made me a better vet for sure. And then it translates to all the other species. So after that, I ended up doing a fellowship at the Vancouver Aquarium up in BC, Canada, And they are worked with a whole variety of species, both in their aquarium and at the Marine Mammal Rescue Center that they run. And it was really neat being able to take everything I just learned in vet school, solidified with actual hands-on cases during my small animal internship, and then had to basically extrapolate that and apply it to harbor seals and harbor porpoises and eels and octopus. It was really cool. So even though you know, that wasn't the route I was going to stay in. It all kind of translated and helped me become a better vet. And then of course, there's a lot of on the job learning (laughs) when Mm. it comes to robotics and, you know, trying to figure out the differences of all the different species, a lot of looking things up and studying and lots and lots of textbooks and journal articles to learn from. That was going to be my next question. You know, you must need so many specialist skills to be a marine mammal veterinarian, you know, just not only the the sheer number of different species that you're working with that could be vastly different from each other but also you know their own physiology is so different you know with the mm-hmm. way even just their respiratory systems and the, the way that they breathe is so different from terrestrial animals what kind of challenges does that present to a vet yeah a lot of challenges I mean many times when we diagnose something it's, it's often the first time that anyone's ever diagnosed that in a dolphin or sea lion, which is just crazy. Like we're that, I don't want to say far behind because we're doing a great job, but we mm-hmm. are, we are that much further behind human medicine and dog and cat medicine because there's so much more to learn. And like you said, so many differences. 
and not just in how they breathe or how they behave or where they live in the water, but how they metabolize drugs completely yeah. differently than other species. So you can't just assume, okay, this worked in a dog. I can give the same dose to a dolphin. That's, you know, people have done that at times and that's how they figured it out. Well, turns out that they metabolize that drug very differently and it mm-hmm. didn't go or maybe it did. So there's just so much we still have to learn. You have to really um, kind of do your homework. Like anytime you want to start anything new, you have to look up, has anyone ever used this before? You have to reach out to your colleagues. If it's not published yet, say, hey, has anyone ever done this before? Use this drug, whether good or bad. And I think that's one of the more important things about our field is most of the time we only want to publish what has gone well, but it's equally as important almost to tell others what hasn't gone well, right? So that nobody makes the same mistake you did. Or if you learned all this great information, you put it out there. So the other person who's at another park or aquarium or zoo or whatever it might be, they don't have to start from scratch. They can build upon what you've already found. And so that's, I know we all get so busy. It's kind of hard for us to all take the time to do it, but it's super important just to collaborate across facilities because it is such a small field and we're trying to learn so much and kind of move the medicine forward and we can do it much more effectively together than, you know, individually. So it takes a lot of collaborating and, you know, thinking outside the box. We also lean pretty heavily on reaching out to specialists too, because like you said, we have to be our own specialists. So on any given day, I might be doing an eyeball procedure or a small surgery or, you know, a bronchoscopy looking in the lungs of a dolphin. So we have to kind of be a jack of all trades. And sometimes we do feel like jack of all trades, master of none, like we Mm. specialize everything. And I'm a little jealous. I have a, a human friend, a human doctor friend. <laughs> I have a human friend. <laughs> I have a human friend who is a human doctor and works on elbows, human elbows. Just and elbows. I, just elbows. And I mm-hmm. am a little envious sometimes when I feel like a master of none, that how cool is it that he studies one joint in one species and is just like the specialist and knows everything about that one joint and one species where I'm over here trying to learn hundreds of species and everything about all of them and obviously can't do it to that level of detail so it depends on the day and the case where I either love (laughs) being the jack of all trades and then sometimes realizing okay I don't know enough on this so let's let's combine forces and we'll bring in you know a human radiologist or human cardiologist or even small animal veterinary cardiologist and basically say okay I know about marine mammals you know about cardiology, like let's combine what we know and figure out this problem. So that it is pretty neat how much we combine our head or bring our heads together with other specialists to answer questions. And I love that as well, you know, the collaboration between human medicine and specifically marine mammal medicine, you know, the fact that we will bring in specialists from a hospital nearby or even take our animals to a CT scanner (laughs) in a Mm -hmm. hospital you know we'll specially train the animals to take them there what is it like to work in that kind of collaboration with doctors I love it because we learn so much from each other and get different ideas from one another Mm -hmm. so as we're kind of going through a case or looking at the images or planning for a procedure they'll ask a question that none of us have ever thought of that way. Mm. And so it's good to kind of bounce ideas off of um, instead of staying in our own little bubble and realm and, you know, group of vets to branch out and kind of get totally different ideas from another field entirely and from human doctors and, you know, learning about drugs that aren't commonly used in the veterinary field and, you know, different technology 
such as, you know, disposable bronchoscopes. We had no idea that was even a thing because it's not really used much in veterinary medicine, but in human, everything's going the disposable route because of, you know, hospital-acquired yeah. hospital infections and that sort of thing. Um, so just having different tools and drugs and ideas mm -hmm. that we never would have come up with on our own had we not collaborated with them. It's one of the really nice benefits. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to ask the question, like what does a typical day of a marine mammal vet look like, but every day will be different, obviously. Like <laughs> I, I think anyone could probably answer that question, but, or maybe what are your favorite parts of the job? Oh, that's a great question. And yes, every day is definitely different. And that actually is one of my favorite parts of the job. It's not a desk job where I'm going to sit nine to five every single day mm. and it's going to be the same, you know, mundane computer task or something. Every single day is totally different. And I love that. That was, I also love that about emergency medicine when I did work um, during my internship. You never know what's going to walk through the door next. And sure, some days it would be nice to have a little predictable schedule, but yeah. it's nice having the variety. You can never, ever, ever get bored. There is mm -hmm. no way any marine mammal that is bored because every day is just completely different. And the one day that you think will be your boring desk job catch up day turns out to always be the craziest of all the days. So every single day is different. And that's definitely one of my favorite things. I also love that we do get to dabble in all of the different specialties and combine with other specialists across fields. Um, I think that's pretty unique about veterinary medicine, especially that you can, if I wanted tomorrow to wake up and become an equine vet, I could. It would take me lots of training, but I could do that. How cool is that? That I work in a field where you can just change your niche within the field. Yeah. Okay. So it's pretty neat that we have so many opportunities and options within our same field and as a vet you get to kind of dabble in all of them and fulfill all of any of the dreams you might have within vet med uh, by being a marine mammal vet and then I also love that we have to think outside the box and that there is like we touched upon already there is so much we don't know yeah. which is really sometimes frustrating right when you want to prescribe a drug but nobody's ever used it in that species before so you have to be really careful sometimes it's frustrating and other times it's um, kind of gives you like renewed enthusiasm and motivation mm -hmm. and drive and inspiration to keep going and answering all the questions. Mm -hmm. And once you find out the answer to one question, five more pop up and you realize you've just gotten to the tip of the iceberg or scratched the surface and there's so much more to know. So I think that's one of the coolest things for me that kind of keeps me going is that thirst to answer more and more questions. Yeah. And we will never know enough, right? We'll never be satisfied. So we'll have to keep pushing the envelope, kind of moving the medicine forward, moving the research forward and sharing it with others so that we can continue moving on and improving our care of these species. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something that I, I wanted to touch on for me coming from the training side of things, you know, I feel like I've been incredibly lucky to work with some truly world-renowned marine mammal specialists, killer whale specialists in particular. Um, and I also feel very lucky in my career that I've had great relation working relationships with vets. Um, and I know that not all trainers are so lucky, um, you know, where the vets would trust our judgment, would ask us questions about the animals. It was very much a back and forth about treatment plans and about, you know, having discussions and open ended questions about animal welfare and animal health care. What are your views on that trainer vet relationship and how important it can be to the animal's welfare? Absolutely. It is one of the most important things. 
I absolutely agree that it has to be a back and forth trusting relationship. And the trainers know the animals so well that they are picking up on things immediately that if they weren't telling their vet staff, hey, I noticed such and such thing that's a little bit different today on my whatever animal it might be. If we didn't have that information, we would probably not pick up on it as soon. And if the animal was sick, we would find it much later. Mm. We would find out much later when it's not necessarily too late, but later in the course and things are more mm. severe. And instead of nipping it in the bud, you're putting out the fire. So yeah. that relationship is so important and the trust. So it, it definitely takes a while. I've worked now with the Marine Mammal Foundation for seven years or no, that's not true. I've been a vet for seven years. I worked <laughs> at the National Marine Mammal Foundation for five and a half years. Um, and it takes years to build up that relationship with your trainers and your vet team and your vet techs. Yeah. So that everyone feels comfortable too. Mm -hmm feeling like they can bring up concerns. And sometimes we say, okay, thank you for your concern. Like we'll keep an eye on it. And other times yeah. we say, oh yes, that sounds significant. Mm -hmm. Let's do a medical workup on your animal to make sure that they're not ill. And sometimes they really are catching something in its infancy. Um, and other times we might not be, it might just be a behavioral change, but it's good that we're noticing it mm -hmm. and it turn into some, you know, illness that we're, we're aware of it and we can jump on it quickly. So yeah, that relationship is so important and just for the preventative care too. So mm -hmm. not only responding to when they're sick, one of the most important things that I do is just day-to-day -day preventative care of the animals mm -hmm. to prevent them from getting sick and to just do physical exams, ultrasounds, you know, routine things so that we know what normal is for that animal. So if something does change, we can pick up on it. And the trainers work so hard to make sure the animals know how to lay out for an ultrasound, how to do a voluntary blood sample. So we could not do a lot of the great medical care that we do without having that close relationship with the trainers who have the close relationship with the animal and that trust and ability to do things voluntarily. Yeah. And one thing that I really love to encourage with both trainers and I would say vets or vet techs or vet nurses, whoever is work, if we're all working for the animals is to have transferable skills. Um, and I feel so privileged that I worked in a place that really encouraged that where, you know, we encouraged our vets, like come down and just have a play session with the animals, like come down and get to know them, like learn how to tell them apart, learn yeah. their personalities. We will help you read and understand their behavior. And the vets would give us lectures on the effects of antibiotics and on um, so many different physiological things that, you know, I, I had a primarily psychology background, even though I did a minor in biology. So I didn't know a lot of the specialist anatomy and physiology yeah. of specifically marine mammals, you know, so that was so unbelievably helpful to just being a trainer and being able to do my job, but then similarly, you know, with the vets. And I think something that that is helping nowadays is so much of the research that we're mm -hmm. now doing, you know, so we're trainers are getting to train all of these different behaviors like layouts, et cetera, like you mentioned ultrasounds, and then the vets are able to come in and have very easy access to these animals. And then yeah. putting all of that together is helping us with research. So that leads me on to a lot of the research that you're involved in. See, see that segue there, Barb? That, that was there. There we go. <laughs> I try. I do try. Um, so yeah, can you um, tell our listeners a little bit about some of the research that you're involved in? 
Definitely. So as a whole, the foundation, the National Marine Mammal Foundation, one of our kind of big efforts is taking the knowledge that we have from working with dolphins and sea lions and applying that. And now the big focus is applying that to other endangered species that I kind of fly under the radar, actually. So this first started a few years ago with the vaquita porpoise. I don't know if you kind of heard this story about the vaquita porpoise down in Mexico in the Sea of Cortez. And scientists estimate that there are about 10 left in the world right now. They only live in that one little spot in the world. And they're really elusive. They're not very like flashy, loud animals. They're very elusive. So they're hard to find too. And basically the foundation got involved um, in trying to actually rescue and then see if we could help them in captivity and then release them again and try to learn more about their species and kind of get their numbers up under human care. And if you haven't seen the documentary of this effort yet, I highly, highly recommend it. It's called Sea of Shadows and Leonardo DiCaprio is actually the executive producer on it. And the main um, veterinarian that's highlighted in the documentary is my boss, Dr. Cynthia Smith. So she was one of the main veterinarians who led this effort, but it was a huge collaboration across multiple countries, um, multiple biologists, trainers, veterinarians, you name it, who tried to go make this effort happen. And spoiler alert for the movie, but it didn't work out the way they hoped um, but are working still on the effort to save the vaquita in other ways now, like trying to mitigate the direct effects, the gill nets that are killing them and um, the illegal trafficking and so on. So the momentum from that effort has kind of catapulted um, some of our conservation veterinarians led by Cynthia Smith, who I mentioned, and Forrest Gomez is the other, she's the director of conservation medicine now. And so they're trying to take that effort and apply it to other species before it gets too late, before there's only 10 left. And so how they're doing this is they're contacting people around the world who have a species like the vaquita that they don't really know how to help and that are going mm -hmm. endangered. So they're working all over the world now um, in Pakistan, in South America, all over to try to bring attention and learn more before it's too late about some of these species like river dolphins and La Heels dolphin, yeah. Indus river dolphin. Um, and so that's one of the kind of biggest efforts that we're trying to work on right now. And it's definitely gaining momentum and gaining attention around the world. And it's just fascinating because a lot of people until two years ago, didn't even know what a vaquita was, had never yeah. even heard of it. And it's the most endangered mammal in the world. And nobody even knew, especially here in San Diego, nobody even knew it's a couple hours away. Mm -hmm. We're not even far from it. And now there are all these other species that are kind of, we're trying to shed more light on yeah. like the river dolphin or the Indus dolphin um, so that people can be aware before there's only 10 left and learning about their baseline, about their health and just doing health assessments is kind of step one and then making mitigation plans for how we can help those populations and their specific uh, reasons for becoming endangered. And so that's been a huge effort um, for the foundation. And that's kind of one of the bigger efforts that is ramping up now. But a lot of the, one of the efforts that people are a little more familiar with 
in recent years is our effort for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that happened in the Gulf of Mexico in the U.S. Uh, back in 2010. And basically between 2011 till now, the National Marine Mammal Foundation vets and biologists and trainers have been helping with a big collaboration to look at what were the effects of the oil spill on the dolphins who live in that area. Mm -hmm. And so over many, many years doing health assessments and research and developing different research tools and projects have been able to document the really awful health effects on the dolphins who lived near the oil spill. And essentially they had huge population decline. They had really bad lung disease um, an inability to reproduce as efficiently as before. So basically the moms were able to get pregnant, but then they weren't healthy enough to actually carry the babies to term most often. So their population isn't quite rebounding the way that people mm -hmm. had hoped because they're not able to have successful calves. Um, and then I got involved a couple years ago. I had the pleasure when I joined the Marine Mammal Foundation of helping with the cardiac work. And so it was, I was really lucky to be able to be involved in this, essentially looking at how did the oil affect the hearts of the dolphins in that area? And this question kind of came about because other species were showing cardiotoxic effects from oil from the Deepwater Horizon spill. So some fish and some seabirds, and actually even the humans who lived near the oil spill or the ones who went and actually helped clean up the oil spill, they were having things like heart attacks and ECG abnormalities, um, let alone, I think some even maybe died. So then looking at, well, how did it affect the dolphins? And I got to be a part of that story. And that's, as I mentioned before, like we really just scratched the surface is the tip of the iceberg because nobody had even looked at normal. No one had ever done comprehensive cardiac assessments of wild dolphins anywhere ever. Certainly people had looked at stranded dolphins who, you know, wash up dead and we look at their tissues, but no one had ever even done an ultrasound of a heart of a wild dolphin. So we had a lot to learn to even try to answer our question. So really, again, answering one question brought about, you know, 25 yeah. more that we have many years of research ahead of us if we could get it funded. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a big question that a lot of people who aren't involved in the field ask, you know, how how is it that having these animals in human care is even able to help those animals out there in the wild? So you're an excellent person to ask that question to. So for those dolphins that you're studying out in the wild, how is it that the population that you guys study in human care is helping? How are they assisting? Yeah, so that's where... The foundation is so uniquely suited. We get to work with these amazing dolphins under human care and sea lions under human care, and we can then apply what we learn to these wild populations. So for the cardiac work in particular, we were able to basically refine our techniques using the Navy dolphins and looking at their cardiac health at the same time. So it was basically win-win. Let's look at the Navy dolphin cardiac health and refine our techniques so that we can be finding the most efficient way, most reproducible way to then do it really quickly when we have these wild dolphins under that we're holding for a very small amount of time, get as much information as possible and let them go. And so we um, published a couple of papers that came out of this work, basically looking at the Navy dolphin heart health and techniques, and then comparing that with the wild dolphins too. So it's amazing because you could never try to develop that technique at the time that you're catching a wild dolphin. You just can't. You're trying to keep them in as short a time as possible and be as efficient as possible. That's not the time to be floundering or fumbling around figuring out your best technique, right? You need to have it polished so that you can apply it as quickly and efficiently as possible and get as much information as you possibly can in that really, really quick window where simultaneously several other things are also going on. 
Um, and so using the Navy Dolphins to have the technique down and to be able to know that we're getting reproducible results was incredibly helpful. And that's just one example. This is, you know, something that Dr. Ridgway, the founder of Marine Mammal Medicine and the former president of the National Marine Mammal Foundation, that was one of his big um, efforts is, okay, we need to take what we've learned here and apply it elsewhere and have it be mutually beneficial. And so this is definitely a good example of that. And there's other projects where we've done similar things, looking at reproductive health of animals under managed care and then applying that to wild populations as well. Yeah, so I think it's kind of obvious to us the benefits of studying these animals in human care and the incredible implications that that can have for their wild counterparts. But unfortunately, not everyone shares our views. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to people who potentially don't necessarily understand the importance of your work? Definitely. So I think I would love to be able to explain and convince and some of the, I think, well-intentioned, but potentially mm. misguided activists that to explain to them that the animals under professional care at accredited zoos and aquariums, at the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program, you know, at these reputable places who have excellent medical care, excellent nutrition, excellent enrichment, their animals are not the ones who need their attention. Mm. And I wish I could convince them and show them the other animals who genuinely do need their attention, like all of these endangered animals all over the world that nobody's even heard of that are going to go extinct in our lifetimes and we're not doing anything to help them yet. Mm. So I wish we as a community of aquatic professionals, zoo professionals, if we could all be a little bit louder, honestly, mm -hmm. to get our messaging out there and convince this group of people who love animals, right? They do it because they love animals too. And they think that they're doing what's best for the animals. And it's up to us, the well-informed, scientifically backed professionals to convince them, thank you for your care of our animals. Thank you for caring. But ours are actually doing great. They're thriving. They have excellent medical care, excellent nutrition. They're way outliving their wild counterparts because we're taking such good care of them. Like, thank you for your concern of them, but they're good. Can I please show you mm. these other 10 species who really could benefit from your voice and your energy and your motivation to help animals and frankly, your money? Like mm -hmm. we can't do much without any funding. So instead of wasting your time, money, effort, focusing on the animals under human care in captivity, let's focus on the ones who are dying in the wild because yeah. of human impacts. Whether those human impacts are direct or indirect, we're essentially at fault for many animals going extinct right before our eyes. So let's focus on that. And I wish, you know, we as the informed, scientifically minded professionals could be louder than those who are maybe not as informed and are kind of not speaking based on the facts or only looking at a certain very small bit of the mm -hmm. facts and kind of twisting them. So I think as a group, we need to work on that. And obviously not only engaging the activists, but also engaging future generations, yeah. because we're all going to have to retire, hopefully. <laughs> and we're going to need someone to take the torch and be the next generation that cares and can effectively communicate it. Because our science isn't as effective or impactful if we don't share it with anyone. Yeah. And it's 
to share with the scientific community, which I think we're really good at. We're really good at holding conferences and talking to one another in our little bubble that is our scientific community. But we need to kind of break out of that bubble a little more vocally, mm -hmm. energetically, or whatever way will engage the other people who aren't even aware of all of the great things that are happening and all of the animals who do need our help. And so that was one of uh, Dr. Ridgway, who was the former president yeah. of the foundation, who unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago. He was actually planning on giving uh, the closing remarks at our last IAAAM meeting last year. And unfortunately he was sick and couldn't give the address, but that was essentially his message for let's talk about animal welfare and let's talk about that it, the focus doesn't necessarily need to be on the animals under our care who are doing great. We need to refocus the welfare discussion to the global picture and mm -hmm. to all of these animals who aren't doing well because of human impacts. And okay, how can we use what we now know from animals and managed care to help those animals? Yeah. So that's, I think, what we all need to, as a community, strive towards and try to do better because there's definitely room for improvement there. I think also just a massive re-education movement is needed for the general public to right. change their perception of marine animals and human care and the way that we've seen it happen with traditional zoos in the last 20 years public perception has shifted and I personally have a lot of hope um, that our industry will follow suit and I'm 100% sure that it will if we continue using our voices and sharing everything because we have nothing to hide. We can right. show all of the videos. We can show all of the scientific evidence. You know, it's right. all there for people to see. But I can imagine how frustrating it must be for you and for other scientific professionals who have written the damn papers to <laughs> present them to people and have them go, I still don't believe it. It is frustrating. It is frustrating. And I I don't know if we need to say it in a different way or show them in a different way, but we can't give up. Like you said, we we have to keep moving forward on that path of re-educating and rebuttaling some of the things that have come out in the last few years. I know the scientific community kind of took the high road and didn't, hmm. you know, whatever phrase you want to use like didn't it didn't get super involved yeah they wanted to kind of right. go you know we have nothing to hide why should we have to defend ourselves against false accusations because they're not true but instead everyone took that silence for oh well, you must have something to hide and we're kind of now like no we didn't we promised we didn't. Right. Um, no, I think I understand why as a or as a community mm. that happened but now I think whether it's a rebuttal to that or not, like you said, we need to re-educate people. The mm -hmm. only way to do that is to be a little louder, a little more out there presenting the facts and the evidence yeah. of all of the great things that are going on um, in any of the wonderful accredited zoos and aquariums. I mean, I'm a great example. I told you my very first question that we were talking about. I fell in love with animals at SeaWorld and Disney. Yeah. I, had, I grew up in Boston. I never saw a dolphin. Mm -hmm. Had I not seen a dolphin or a manatee, who knows where I would be right now? Yeah. Maybe not being a marine mammal vet who's trying to, you know, save the world one marine mammal at a time. <laughs> I love that. Save the world one marine mammal at a time. Please, please put that on a t-shirt. Please, because yeah. <laughs> trademark right now, 
Barb Linehan is going to put that on a t-shirt. We're all going to buy it. And all of the proceeds are going to go to conservation. It's happening. Happening. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think what's really important to realize as well is that a lot of the people that are super closed minded, you know, whenever we present them with the scientific research and say, hey, please go and read this paper, they're not going to do it because they're very set in their ways. You know, those are not the people that we should be aiming to re-educate. It should be the people that are open-minded or just have not been exposed to it yet. You know, those are the people that we need to share our message with. And I think, unfortunately, the the people on the other side of the argument are very good at that. They're very good at sharing their own propaganda and their own images and their own message. And that is getting to people first. So right. we now need to be equally as loud and get to them before they've been exposed to this other side of the story. And before I would say the seed of mistrust has been planted, um, which is just, and this isn't even, sorry, I'm totally going off on a tangent. I'm very good at this. Um, (laughs) This isn't unique to our industry. This rhetoric is happening in every industry on the planet right now. And Mm -hmm. the internet is probably, Dr. Google is to blame because everyone, everyone thinks that they know more than the other person. So That also kind of calms me down a little bit when I get very frustrated about it is reminding myself like, hey, this is happening in every industry. This is happening with scientific professionals in any discipline. It is not unique to just marine mammals. So I think we also have to remember that. Definitely. Equally frustrating to watch in other (laughs) realms, but yeah, Yeah. we're not totally right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thank you for coming on and sharing everything with us. You know, I think you're doing incredible work. You've shared so much with us. If anyone would like to go and read your papers or find out a little bit more, I will leave all of the links in the description. Um, But I know that you have a super busy schedule. It has taken us a long time to even just sit down and have this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, we're here. (laughs) I know. So thank you so, so much for taking the time. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe and I will see you all next week.